I'm, I'm going to um, try and just give you an idea of the, the story behind this, yeah, because uh, it's been a long-running story, certainly sort of in epidemiology, whether actually moderate alcohol consumption is um, actually um, beneficial. Okay, so this started off with something known as the kind of French paradox. So this is kind of information from an ecological study, and they were looking at the association between heart disease, coronary heart disease, and cholesterol. And they noticed that, uh, you know, for, for most countries, you know, there was a kind of uh, linear relationship. Finland were, have had um, sort of at that time when this was done, so this was done in about sort of 1980 or something like that, Finland had a really sort of bad sort of um, cardiovascular disease sort of like profile, and they've, they've since sort of modified that. But essentially, France, even though they had a high cholesterol intake, they um, actually had lower levels of um, coronary heart disease. Uh, and then a kind of follow-up to this was then sort of people saying, well, what, what was the explanation for this? And they did a plot of the per capita alcohol consumption against sort of CHD death rates. And you could see that, okay, Finland were sort of down at the other end, and here, here was France with low death rates, but still, you know, you know the the higher sort of levels of alcohol consumption. So this kind of got people thinking, well, what, what are the reasons behind this? Because it's kind of ecological data. So this kind of spawned lots of sort of hypotheses. And so, you know, basically it's based on looking at this, they're saying, well, this positive relationship with saturated fat. Situation in France was paradoxical, simply because, um, you know, they had this kind of low mortality rate and they thought it might be due to high wine consumption because there's some, you know, various sort of things in wine that people believe are kind of uh, protective. And I'll say more about that a bit, bit later. But also, there was other things, you know, in terms of hypotheses. Some people thought that they, it might be a time lag because they actually had a look at this sort of information and they were thinking that actually in terms of cholesterol levels, maybe it was taking time for it to kick in before you started seeing the, the benefits. So people started actually having saturated fat in France later than some other countries. And you see a similar thing with smoking. You don't see the death rate until sort of 20 years later because people have to be smoking for a while before you start seeing the harms that it does. Uh, and then they thought, oh, could it be diet as well? So there's differences in diet in terms of sort of things like folate, uh, nuts, uh, and then sort of things like polyunsaturated fats as well. And then they also thought, well, the French, you know, they drink with meals. So it's the pattern of drinking. Is that the kind of thing that might be going on as opposed to the Brits who go sort of binging at weekends or something on an empty stomach. So it's that kind of thing. So that, that was one of the things that they thought might be of interest. So this led to several sort of cohort studies being done. And one of the things that they found, this, these are data from sort of five cohort studies. Uh, 
They were the largest done at that time. And actually, you can see this kind of J-shaped association in all of them, uh, where actually, at the lower levels of alcohol consumption, there seemed to be you know, some benefit. And then that starts going away as people sort of drink more and more. And these were, this was mostly done in sort of male cohorts. But there's a similar, it's the same sort of thing with women. So essentially, this kind of J-shaped association was always sort of related to sort of, you know, at the lower levels of alcohol consumption, you saw some kind of benefit. And then as people sort of drank more and more, uh, then you started seeing harms. So that, that was kind of, you know, evidence from kind of the analytical epidemiology. But there's quite a few sort of biases in there. I'm not expecting you to read all of this. Essentially, the kind of biases, things like confounding by the type of drink uh, or the pattern of drinking that we were mentioned, but things like socioeconomic status and lifestyle, those kind of things can sort of create issues. But also the choice of reference group makes a difference as well. So if you choose uh, non-drinkers, you, you might see some sort of differences. Also things like reverse causality uh, in terms of once people get ill, then they actually they change their behaviour. So they stop drinking or smoking, those kind of things. So those are the kind of things that could be going on. Some of the studies were case control, so there could be sort of recall or misclassification. You ask anyone to, you know, what they drink or what they eat uh, just by sort of recalling. They tend to um, underestimate or underreport. There's also within-person variation. So over time, people will change. As you get older, you start sort of drinking patterns change. You know, maybe when you're younger, you drink more. And then, of course, the study design or sort of publication bias that could maybe affect what's going on. So this was sort of a, a review paper that a colleague and I did several years ago now. But this is just to give you an idea of what the impact of the choice of the reference category is. So essentially, this dark line is choosing individuals that are non-drinkers, so you see a kind of more accentuated sort of association. And then this dotted line is actually when you change the reference category. So what we did in this paper, we got hold of the individual data. We had a look at what they had originally when they used a reference category of non-drinker, and then we changed it to sort of light drinking and see what you would get if you sort of plotted that out again. So the difference that you see here is actually on how beneficial you think it might be for moderate drinking because, you know, you've got a nadir that's in a different level for, you know, once you use a different reference category. And then here is showing, well, where does it become harmful? Well, it's actually... Um, at a different level uh, if you use one reference category as opposed to another. So it kind of changes your, your kind of overall interpretation, if you see what I mean. So 
this led to sort of um, people thinking, well, we need to have some kind of comprehensive meta-analysis, trying to have a look at what's been done and try and really understand um, what's happening. So this paper was you know, published in The Lancet. And what they did was they got 83 large perspective studies and actually got them all together, harmonized the information, uh, and then tried to see if they could come up with a clearer picture of what was going on. So the methodology of that, and because this is a kind of medical sort of stats course, I thought I'd sort of mention, give you a bit of detail on this. So they focused on current drinkers for three main reasons. What they wanted to do was think about alcohol guidelines, so what can you actually say for people who are current drinkers based on that information, uh, but also to try and limit some of those biases that I sort of mentioned on the previous slide, so things like reverse causality, residual confounding, and, and so on. And also, there seems to be some evidence that never drinkers kind of systematically differ from drinkers somehow. Uh, so that's why it's not usually a good sort of reference category to use. And then they tried to harmonise all the alcohol consumption across the contributing studies using a conversion rate of one unit being about eight grams of pure alcohol. And then they converted that to a kind of standard scale of grams per week. Then they tried to make sure they looked at sort of various confounders. So, you know, things like uh, smoking, history of diabetes, obviously age. And they also wanted to correct for measurement error and within-person variation, which I sort of alluded to. So within these kind of cohorts, they had uh, repeat measures on you know, subsets of individuals that actually showed how people's sort of alcohol behaviour or drinking habits had changed over time. So they tried to sort of account for that change over time by using the information on these kind of serial assessments. Uh, and they used uh, a kind of method known as regression calibration for those of you that uh, are not familiar. This is kind of like a standard way of actually adjusting for measurement error, assuming that it's sort of, uh, um, sort of random. Uh, regression calibration is a, a kind of standard approach for dealing with that. And then they also looked at patterns of drinking as well. So they, they had sort of wine, beer and spirits, you know, frequency consumption and then episodic heavy drinking. So here on the left is their first. So this is looking at the association between all-cause mortality from the, all the studies. So the usual alcohol consumption means that it's been corrected for within-person variation rather than sort of baseline um, alcohol. Uh, and you can see that for all-cause mortality, I mean, it's sort of fairly flat at sort of low levels and then starts picking up afterwards, after about 150 or something. Whereas for cardiovascular disease, you've still got that, uh, at the lower levels, you've got that inverse association that then sort of um, goes up afterwards, so in a kind of J shape. So they tried to look at different subtypes, so they looked at sort of stroke and MI, coronary disease, excluding MI, 
uh, heart failure and deaths from other types of sort of cardiovascular disease. So as you can see for stroke, it looks like there is um, a kind of strong positive association. So you know, drinking more seems to be harmful for stroke. Whereas for MI, well, it looks like it's uh, a, an inverse association there. Whereas for coronary disease, excluding MI, sort of fairly unclear. Heart failure looks like a kind of positive trend. And deaths from other sort of cardiovascular diseases, similar. And they summarise the results here. So for all stroke, they thought it was about a 14%, and they split into non-fatal and fatal, and hemorrhagic and ischemic, and sort of other sort of subtypes. You can see those are the ones that are all sort of uh, positively associated with alcohol consumption, whereas for MI, looks like there's an inverse association, and then sort of mixed results for some of these other things down there. And generally, not too much heterogeneity, probably a little bit high for this one, but generally, you know, reasonably consistent results between the studies from what they reported. They also tried to sort of get a, a good public health message across, so they tried to have a look at the estimated years of life lost. You know, if you were a regular sort of um, low alcohol drinker, 100 to 200 grams, you know, sort of moderate and then sort of high amount to try and have a look at what we could do. And you could actually, they plotted the sort of the years of life lost for males and females and, you know, seeing very similar sorts of shapes for both of those two and, you know, similar amounts of years lost for uh, drinking, you know, moderately or heavily. And they did try and actually sort of do a trial. So there was, there was, a, a, there was a, a trial that was going to be run in the US at one stage. They tried to get 7,800 participants who were going to randomise them to one drink a day, to none for six years. <laughs> uh, and the primary outcome was going to be atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease and secondary was going to be kind of vascular death and diabetes. But you won't be surprised to know <laughs> that actually they thought, hang on, that's not going to work. And they pulled the plug on that. At the time, when we were looking at it, we thought, well, this is going to be sort of uh, quite ambitious. And, uh, yeah, so they ended up not doing that. Because of, you know, the flaws in observational evidence, you know, there's not really much chance of getting a trial. Could genetics give us a, a kind of clue on, on what to do? There are a couple of genetic variants that actually sort of affect alcohol metabolism. So, the, so they've got very similar names, so it can be quite confusing. So ADH is alcohol dehydrogenase. And what that does, it converts to acetaldehyde and actually, you know, it kind of increases that. So basically when you feel hungover and horrible and nauseous, that's, that's the reason. Uh, and then the other one, ALDH, actually sort of 
turns acetaldehyde to acetate, but it, it slows down that process. You, it doesn't quite have as strong an effect on you in terms of how you feel, but essentially both of them lead to sort of, can lead to sort of nausea and various sort of things and headaches and all those kind of things that you feel when you're, you're kind of hungover. Essentially, the general feeling is you can use these to conduct what's known as a Mendelian randomization study. And essentially, a study where, if you think of using a genetic variant that you kind of assigned a genotype at birth, that can give you sort of a, an idea if you've got a particular genotype, whether you're tolerant for alcohol or not. And you could do a similar study, which is essentially what they were trying to do, randomise you to a drink or, or not. And that, that would be probably the, the best way of trying to sort of do that. So I've just put the assumptions here in one sort of figure. But essentially, the assumptions are the genetic variant that you choose must be related to that kind of you know, exposure that you're interested in. So it must be related to alcohol in this case. So that's known as the relevance assumption. The relationship between alcohol and the outcome, so a heart disease in this case, it must work through that pathway, not through any other pathway. And then the genetic variant must not be associated with any sort of confounders. So, you know, you can kind of um, check some of these assumptions, but some of them are not. It can be difficult unless you know a lot about the kind of biology of, of the variants. In this case, there's a lot known about these, this particular SNP. It's it's quite a good candidate to do this kind of um, analysis. This was a Mendelian randomization study that looked at sort of individual participant data, tried to sort of get the information together and see what they could do. So what they did was they chose this particular SNP. It is non-synonymous, so it means it actually affects the kind of protein directly. So basically it you know, that particular SNP controls what, what's going on. In this particular gene, the ADH1B, and I showed you that on the previous slide, and that can, one of the genes that controls alcohol metabolism. And they got an international collaboration together. Everyone who'd measured this, uh, and sort of cardiovascular biomarkers and various sort of events in order to try and understand fully what was going on. Uh, they restricted individuals to um, those of European descent with uh, data on this particular SNP uh, and you know, age and sex and any of the outcomes of interest. And what they did, I don't know how familiar you are with genetics, but this particular SNP, ADH1B, has two alleles. Yeah, so one, the A is the bad one and the G is the good one. And you can actually have three genotypes, A, G, essentially. And what they did is they pulled the results. So if you had any bad allele, which is the A, 
they combined individuals with the AA and the AG and compared them with the, the GG. Uh, and they quantified the effects of that A allele on different alcohol traits uh, and lifestyle things. And they also had a look to see how related it was to kind of cardiovascular biomarkers. So trying to sort of put together a picture of how it might sort of work. And then they evaluated the strokes on, um, sorry, the analysis on coronary heart disease stroke, and they looked at type 2 diabetes as well. They did some log transformations for the continuous variables. They looked at the kind of mean difference and worked out the kind of percentage difference. And they looked at the shape of the association for the kind of biomarkers and confounders. And then they also compared the genetic results with some observational results as well, just to try and see how different they were, essentially. So here's what they found. So overall, they found a sort of marginal sort of uh, benefit, about 10% for, uh, for coronary heart disease. And then they had a look in drinkers and non-drinkers. Uh, you can see it was stronger in drinkers. And then they had a look on whether it was light, moderate, or heavy as well. And you know, there didn't seem to be anything going on there in terms of um, types of uh, different types of uh, alcohol consumption there. They also looked at sort of CVD biomarkers, blood pressure, you know, anthropometric indices, so markers of information. So there's quite a lot in the literature about um, sort of alcohol being, you know, one of the ways that it might work is raising HDL, you know, good cholesterol, basically, and also other kind of markers that might be sort of uh, important. Uh, so that's what they looked at. So they looked at things like sort of interleukin-6 and um, C-reactive protein, which are markers of inflammation. And things seem to be going roughly in the right direction for those. So, you know, lowering blood pressure, I mean, small amounts, but, you know, essentially things seem to be going in, in the, you know, expected direction that were consistent with the results that they were, were seeing. But there are limitations to this work. I mean, essentially that other SNP that I showed you, it's actually... Well, what's known as monomorphic, which means there's nobody with the AA in um, Europeans with that, for that one. That's why they had to use this other SNP, because that, that is sort of prevalent in Europeans. But also they lacked power to identify things with markers of coagulation, so the type 2 diabetes and some of the kind of combined subtypes of stroke. And then there also was evidence of pleiotropy. So one I, on my previous Mendelian randomization slide, I said the pathway that it works through must be via alcohol, not some other pathways. And the fact is there was some association with, of this particular genetic variant with smokers, uh, education, and a few other things that you wouldn't 
want to see. You know, that sort of raises some sort of um, doubts about this. Can you do something in another population? I mean, one of the, uh, the problems with a lot of research that's going on at the moment, it's kind of very sort of Eurocentric. And actually, can you use a different population? So these two genes are actually present in East Asians. This particular variant, the RS671, is actually common in the East Asian population, and it really does slow down that acetaldehyde breakdown. So it, it's, it's often known as the kind of Chinese flushing gene or the Asian flushing gene, because actually people who have these two AA alleles feel absolutely dreadful after just a sip of uh, alcohol. Uh, so these people tend not to drink. So it really does reduce alcohol intake because you feel so bad that you, you don't drink at all. The other variant, slightly less important in East Asians, but it's still more prevalent in East Asians than it is in Europeans. And, you know, it reduces alcohol intake. And both of these variants are more prevalent in East Asians than other populations, not just Europeans. So I'm just going to introduce a study called the China Kadori Biobank that I sort of work on, because that gives us some context to the next bit that we're going to be doing. This study is um, sort of coordinated by our department, but in collaboration with um, a group in China at Peking University. And we collaborate with the China CDC to uh, actually collect data. You know, it's a long-running study, and essentially, you know, it's, you know, it's going to go on indefinitely in terms of as long as we can sort of get money to keep uh, the field work going. But they've collected lots of information, baseline survey and so on. Uh, they do regular resurveys where we actually repeat usually what we've done at baseline, but actually add some further enhancements to kind of get new information. And, you know, we've got sort of blood stored on sort of various sort of things, sort of uh, metabolomics, proteomics, and genetics. And there's some whole genome sort of sequencing data as well. Because we've been able to link this to the kind of national health records in, in China, We've been able to sort of follow up people passively and actually get really good sort of complete information. So there's something like a 98% coverage for the uh, health insurance uh, within China. And you can actually then follow up and get lots of information on sort of various diseases and so on. But in China, men drink and women don't, or very rarely. The mean alcohol intake in the 10 regions here, you can see for the men, it's you know, sort of moderate sort of in, in Gansu, quite high in Sichuan, which is also known for kind of spicy food there. Whereas, you know, in the women, I mean, in Sichuan, it's quite high compared to others, but yeah, it's, it's pretty low, you know, basically a uh, similar sort of thing. Just to remind you, essentially... These two SNPs are prevalent in East Asians, and essentially 
your alcohol intake is reduced substantially with you know, this particular marker, and it's reduced to a, a less, more moderate amount, but still reduced if you've got this particular uh, variant. And just to check how um, sort of good it is in our data, we actually looked at our alcohol data and did a, a GWAS. So this is known as a Manhattan plot. Uh, it, it's supposed to sort of all the peaks are supposed to look like this sort of Manhattan. But this is log 10 p-values on, on the y-axis. This has got a, a p-value of sort of 10 to the minus 40 or something, and this is almost sort of 10 to the minus 200. So you basically, they're, they're definitely there in the population. They're very strong in, in this, in our data. What we did was to try and sort of work out the different combinations of the two SNPs. Rather confusingly, they both got the same sort of allele. So if you, if you think of RS671, it's got those three genotypes, and the other also has the same three genotypes. You've got these kind of nine different combinations. So what we, we did was for these was to try and put together the nine different combinations, but also taking into account the kind of regional differences. So you saw that we had massive regional differences on you know, a, slide, a couple of slides back. We took into account the kind of genotype that was you know, combinations of these two and the, within the region. And then what we did was we used that to kind of categorize people's alcohol intake. So we actually were able to sort of work out what their predicted alcohol would be for these particular com combinations. Due to sort of small numbers, rather than having <clears throat> 10 categories, we ended up with sort of six that were grouped into, that were defined by area and genotype and mean intake. Then using those six categories that I showed you on there, you were able to try and work out what, how much sort of predicted alcohol intake. Essentially, you know, if you were in category six, that worked out about sort of four drinks a day, so it's about sort of 280. Uh, and, you know, if you were in category one, it was less than one drink a week. And then we did the same sort of thing for, for women as well. Because even though women didn't drink much, they, some people did drink, so you could still try and sort of categorise those as well. And then we checked to see what was the relationship with smoking, for example. Uh, and, you know, this is what we would like to see. So actually the, the, the kind of pattern exactly the same across the different categories for smoking, for example. So that would suggest that, you know, it's working through alcohol and not some other sort of pathway. And I'm only showing you this because it's kind of striking, but we looked at other things as well, you know, to make sure that it wasn't sort of related to other potential sort of confounders. So then we tried to have a look at, um, use these genetic categories that predict alcohol intake to actually, how does it relate to sort of various sorts of things? So you can see here that actually there's quite a strong positive association with blood pressure. So if you remember from the European one, they saw a slightly sort of 
lowering of blood pressure. It's very small, whereas this is suggesting that actually, um, you know, drinking more actually raises your blood pressure by, you know, quite a lot. Uh, and, you know, it does raise HDL, but only by a small amount. And GGT is kind of like a good marker uh, of sort of liver function that shows whether you've been drinking or not as well. So, again, you can see that it's uh, related to that. So, one of the reasons we were doing this was to try and say, well, is it related to things that we know sort of biologically and physiologically that have been shown before? So, here's what... We're looking at for alcohol and ischemic stroke. One of the reasons for showing these side by side was for you saw all these kind of J-shaped associations in the kind of prospective cohort. So you still see that in our data if you look at the observational data. But when you look at the genetic, it seems to be you know, clearer in terms of you know, that there's, there's definite sort of harms from, you know, sort of drinking. Similarly for hemorrhagic stroke, again, you see the same sort of J-shape at lower levels, but again, for the genetics, you don't see that. You see it's sort of fairly sort of clear, positive association. For MI, so this was one that was sort of looked like it was beneficial it's inconclusive from the genetic here, I would say. I mean, you know, the confidence interval sort of overlaps one. Could be something going on, you know, it could be a lack of power, but it doesn't look like there's any benefit. If you remember what we saw from that previous um, meta-analysis in Europeans, there's, there's a very strong inverse relationship with MI. We didn't see that here. The other thing was looking at women, women act almost like a negative control. So essentially women rarely drink and or smoke as well. In fact, you know, looking at the analysis in women can actually say, well, is it due to alcohol intake? And there were no positive associations with uh, the biomarkers, you know, so blood pressure and HDL, GDT, and stroke or MI in, in women. You know, that would suggest it is sort of alcohol that's, you know, sort of driving it. We then just tried to look at some other things, so things like sort of BMI and, and glucose. And again, we saw positive associations of uh, BMI and glucose with, you know, genetically predicted um, alcohol. For diabetes... We saw some kind of positive association, again, um, it's sort of modest. And actually, when we adjusted for BMI, it's, it's all gone away. And actually, that, that kind of makes sense, really. So it's mostly driven by sort of adiposity rather than sort of alcohol. And then we also had a look at, at cancer. So, I mean, there's, all, there's benefits for you know, potentially people have thought there were benefits for cardiovascular disease, but essentially you can see there's quite strong uh, associations for different types of cancer that are related to sort of alcohol consumption. 
And, you know, for lung cancer, again, just looking in, even in never smokers, you know, that's, that's probably the one to sort of look at. You can see, I mean, okay, the numbers are small, but, you know, there's a positive association in sort of never smokers with, you know, alcohol and lung cancer. People are talking about things sort of like um, sort of dietary factors, so various sort of things. We looked at those, so things like linoleic acid and omega uh, three fatty acids, it, it looks like, yeah, it raises those things sort of moderately. You know, so there could be, you know, if there are any benefits, it could be sort of working through these things. But, you know, the effects are sort of fairly small. The global burden of disease, you know, says, well, you know, actually, there's quite a few deaths, you know, related to sort of alcohol and disability life years and all those kind of things. And obviously... It's not just sort of CVD. There's things like injuries and digestive disease and various sort of things that can be um, uh, caused by sort of alcohol and sort of violence and various sort of things too. So those apparent protective effects that they are showing and saying that, you know, benefits from that, it's all based on conventional epidemiology. So, I mean, is that the right thing to be working with if... If there's clear evidence that this J-shaped association that's seen could be due to sort of, you know, sort of biases. The summary of the genetic evidence, essentially stroke increases by about a third for every four drinks a day. You know, moderate drinking doesn't appear to protect against stroke. Didn't appear to be any clear benefits for MI. We showed that, you know, genetically predicted alcohol, raised blood pressure, glucose, adiposity, those kind of things. So, yeah, there's a lot of other things going on. And, of course, it's associated with several cancers. Just to conclude, it would say that, you know, that essentially genetic epidemiology suggests that, you know, the observational work is non-causal. You know, so essentially the protective effect of Moderate alcohol is non-causal. You know, it does raise blood pressure, and that's, that's, that's not a good thing. The, it looks like it raises blood pressure to a greater extent than it increases things like HDL and some of the other things that are considered sort of good. But it could be that for MI, you know, some of the kind of benefits that are going on could have cardioprotective effects that are sort of being balanced out by sort of raising the blood pressure, for example, which is why you didn't see the line definitely going up for MI. It was, you know, sort of fairly flat. So there could be a couple of things that are counterbalancing what's going on there. To finish, taken together, I would suggest that the harms outweigh the benefits. So that was my final point. So thanks to the collaborators from uh, the China Kogori Biobank and the various sort of funders. And that's it. <laughs>